This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 3rd, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. This week, we have a special show to mark the fifth anniversary of the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. First, we'll hear from Marsha McNutt about the scientific response to the disaster, and then Warren Cornwall will discuss the state of ecological recovery in the Gulf. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. On April 20, 2010, the Deepwater Horizon oil drilling rig exploded in the Gulf of Mexico, killing 11 workers and setting off the largest marine oil spill in U.S. history. Interdisciplinary science teams played a critical role in responding to the crisis, including quantifying oil flow rates, assessing the safety of the oil well below the rig, and deciding how to deal with the 4.9 million barrels of oil that were released. Marsha McNutt was director of USGS at the time, and she's now the editor-in-chief of Science Magazine. This week's issue looks back on five years of science since the disaster, and she's here to provide some perspective. Marsha, this was the largest spill in U.S. waters. How does it compare in magnitude to previous spills? Well, Suzanne, I think that many of the listeners here probably are old enough to remember the Exxon Valdez oil spill, which was a very large tanker of oil that went aground on Bly Reef in Prince William Sound. And that was another horrible oil spill disaster. Now, Deepwater Horizon went on for 87 days, but in magnitude, it was equivalent to an Exxon Valdez every four and a half days in terms of the amount of oil spilled. That's amazing. And you were director of USGS at the time. What were the most pressing questions that scientists needed to address immediately after the disaster and in the months following it? Well, there were a whole range of questions that the scientific community was energized and mobilized to quickly address. They ranged from questions such as, how quickly is the oil spilling out of the broken well in the deep sea? So in other words, how fast is it coming out? How big is the magnitude of the problem that we're addressing? Secondly, 
when the oil comes out, where is it going? Is it rising all to the surface or what's happening to it? So where do we need to develop our battlefronts, so to speak, to fight this oil spill? The third was, where will it come ashore? How quickly will it come ashore? In what forms will it come ashore? So if we need to worry about protecting sensitive nearshore habitats, where do we deploy our resources first, second, and third in order to protect those places? Next thing we needed to know is how quickly is it getting into the marine food web? So is seafood safe to eat? If not, which seafood do we need to put warnings in? What parts of the ocean need to be shut down from fishing, etc.? And then we needed to study how are we going to get this well under control? How are we going to shut it in? What's the fastest, safest way to do it in such a way that we don't end up making the problem worse? Right, right. Okay. And why was it so important for scientists to accurately quantify the flow rate of the oil that was escaping the well? Because a number of the intervention methods that were on the table, their probability of success depended on how much oil was coming out of the well. So, for example, some listeners might remember one of the earliest methods to try to bring the well under control was the deployment of something called the cofferdam, which was uh, something that I sort of think looked like a big outhouse <laughs> that was you know, put over the broken riser in an attempt to funnel all of the escaping oil into a pipe that would contain the oil and bring it safely up to the surface where it could be collected. Well, one of the reasons why the cofferdam failed was that the amount of oil and the amount of methane gas that was in the oil was uh, badly underestimated. Another method that failed was top kill. A lot of time and effort was put into mobilizing extensive undersea equipment, manifolds and pumps and risers and everything to pump mud down into the well to try to force the hydrocarbons back into the oil reservoir. And top kill failed because the flow rate of the well was badly underestimated. There was simply not enough pressure on the mud to force the oil back into formation. So again, had there been an earlier accurate estimate of the flow rate, I doubt that either of those two first well intervention methods would have been tried and much effort would have put into them because they had such low chances of succeeding. Interesting. So what method did eventually work to shut down the well, Marcia? Yes. So the method that finally did work for ending the oil spill was the application of a capping stack which basically shut the well in from above by putting on top of the leaking well a new valve assembly and closing the valves to shut the well in from above. Now, this idea had actually been on the table for a while, but was viewed as a very, very high-risk maneuver. And the reason it was viewed as high-risk, the easiest way I find to explain it is that let's suppose you have a hose in your yard and the hose is running 
full blast, highest pressure of water coming out of your hose. Now let's suppose you decide you want to stop the water coming out of the hose, and you do it by suddenly putting your hand on the end of the hose. Now if the hose is weak and there was some concern that the well under the seafloor might have been weakened by the initial explosion which caused the oil spill to begin with, if you suddenly put your hand over the end of the hose, you increase the pressure of the water inside the hose, and you can suddenly cause your hose to spring leaks because of the high pressure of the water inside. And so instead of having the water all coming out of the end of the hose, you can have all sorts of leaks springing out all over it, and now you've ruined your hose and you've got water spraying out in all sorts of directions. So the concern was that if we closed the well in from above with the capping stack, we could cause leaks under the seafloor in the Macondo well that would then leak into the geologic formations under the seafloor. Then the hydrocarbons would eventually find their way up to the ocean And instead of there being one point of egress for the hydrocarbons, there would be multiple points for the oil spill. And instead of having one oil spill, we would have numerous points where the oil was escaping and it would be very difficult to control it. So that's why we had to do so much analysis and basically this procedure, which we called the well integrity test, to test whether the well was going to be able to hold the pressure of being shut in. All of the important science that was done, for example, the very critical decision on the well integrity test and how to do it right, this was science that didn't even exist because no one had ever had to make that kind of decision before. All of those protocols had to be developed for the first time. They had to be vetted quickly. They had to be quickly executed. And I am just so grateful for the really excellent work that was done by my colleagues at the USGS and the Department of Energy. They worked as such a crack team in coming up with novel solutions to problems that had never been seen before, and it had to work right the first time, and it did, and ended the oil spill much sooner than if we had had to wait for the relief wells. It was truly a great example of science in action making a difference when it really mattered. And engineers had to act quickly to deal with the oil and decided to use chemical dispersants to break it up. That's something that had been used before in shallower waters, but had never been attempted in deep water. And they did this to try to make the oil more biodegradable by microbes before it could hit shorelines. Now, I understand this was controversial at the time, and it remains so today. Do you think the science is still out on dispersants, Marsha? You're right that the use of dispersants was probably one of the most difficult calls that was made during the oil spill. I think there's still a lot of concern and a lot of controversy about the use of dispersants for the following reasons. The first reason is that the use of dispersants was largely motivated by the desire to break up the oil to make it more bioavailable. 
so that the deep sea microbes would be able to metabolize the oil and make it less likely that it would rise to the surface and come to the shoreline and become a problem. Well, there is some belief today that because of the high pressures that the oil was escaping from the pipe in the well, that it was self-dispersing anyway so that the dispersant wasn't really required, so that is perhaps a possibility. Another issue is what the actual safety is of the dispersants to marine life at those depths. The dispersants had been okayed for use in shallow water because they had shown to be safe for organisms in shallow water, although they hadn't been tested in deep water. The problem with the lack of testing of the dispersants in deep water is that we know of many cases where there are confounding influences under pressure that makes something that is safe at lower pressures suddenly not safe at higher pressures. We've learned an awful lot since Deepwater Horizon, and it's probably timely to do another assessment and figure out whether we would want to use dispersant again in a similar situation. And despite the enormity of the disaster, the response to Deepwater Horizon did allow for scientific advances. With five years of perspective now, what do you feel were some of the most important of these? Well, there were a number of very interesting scientific advances. The first most obvious one was I don't think there was anyone that was talking ahead of time about the very, very large fraction of oil that never surfaced. People had a picture of a deep water blowout in which the well would blow out and the oil comes to the surface. And I think what was most surprising about this oil spill was how much oil never made it to the surface. And so studying how that came to be and what the impacts were was extremely important from a physical standpoint, from an environmental standpoint, from an ecological standpoint that had so much just basic scientific understanding in it. A lot was learned about the ecosystem of the Gulf of Mexico because all eyes were on it. It was amazing to scientists to realize that here is an ecosystem that is heavily fished, a seafloor that is very well mapped and explored in its subsurface for hydrocarbon exploitation. And yet, in terms of the operation of this large marine ecosystem, so little was known about the interaction of the deep currents, how the ecosystem related to the deep currents. It was certainly a problem in trying to understand the environmental impacts, but it was also an opportunity to bring our scientific understanding of the Gulf of Mexico up to a new level. And then the science of quantification of the flow rate of a blown-out well that is releasing uncontrolled oil went forward by leaps and bounds 
when the Macondo well first failed, no one knew how to quantify the flow rate of the well. And after it was all said and done, we knew exactly how to quantify it should this ever happen again. Another thing I can say is that all of the scientists involved were very committed to ensuring that everything was published in peer review journals, and we got a lot of cooperation, even for studies that involved proprietary industry data. There had previously been oil spills in which we knew that much had been learned, but nothing was published, and so all that experience was lost. And that didn't happen in this case. Marsha, are we better prepared now to prevent and respond to future disasters because of lessons learned from Deepwater Horizon? Well, you know, that's a very interesting question because I have no doubt that should another event like Deepwater Horizon occur again, we would probably nail the response. But, of course, that's not what is going to happen because failures don't occur in exactly the same way but something new will happen. We will have another oil spill that will find some new way to happen that we aren't anticipating. I do think that there have been some reforms as a result of Deepwater Horizon that are not specific to this particular incident that will be enduring. For example, consortia of oil companies come together in a larger group with mutual aid agreements. Throughout all of Deepwater Horizon, we kept saying to ourselves how really fortunate, if you can use that word for the worst marine oil spill in U.S. history, that this happened to a company like BP that had the resources to deal with it. If this had happened to a tiny oil company that said, I'm sorry, this is just going to bankrupt us, so we're going to close our doors and walk away from it and hear U.S. government, you deal with it, we would have been in much greater trouble than we were. And so as a result of that, many of the oil companies have come together and said, we need some kind of mutual aid agreement so that no matter who this happens to, we all work together to solve the problem. And I think that is something that's much more enduring and very helpful. And in this week's issue of Science, you call for a community of interdisciplinary disaster scientists. Tell me more about your vision and how your experiences with Deepwater Horizon informed it. Well, I noticed during Deepwater Horizon, a number of questions came up that are not specific to an oil spill. It could have been an earthquake, a hurricane, a chemical spill, a pandemic, but that are typical of disasters, whether they be man-made or whether they be natural disasters. Things like, when is a good time to talk to the press, and how do I talk to the press as a scientist? How do I communicate well with the public and with policymakers? If I'm asked by a decision maker to get scientific input for some decision they have to make, how do I communicate my science to them in a way that they understand and that helps them move to reasonable actions? How do I help frame the science in terms of no regrets actions? How do I get rapid peer review of the science if I come up with my answer at 8 o'clock at night 
and the decision maker needs it at 8 a.m., how do I get peer review in that 12-hour period so that I've got some confidence in what I'm delivering to that decision maker? A lot of these are very common no matter what the disaster. So the vision that I had for this editorial is that scientists who work on these disasters come from not just one discipline. They may be environmental scientists. They may be toxic chemists. They may be in public health They may be geologists, oceanographers, and I had a view of them coming together as a community and having perhaps focus groups at large society meetings where they could have their own thematic sessions. They could build their own unique culture as a community such that they create good working relationships with relevant industries such as oil industries or with insurance companies. They would work well with the response community like the Coast Guard, fire departments, police forces. They need to make decisions and they often need science to inform those decisions. For example, in a forest fire, is it best to let the fire burn to the next fire break, or should I make a stand here? What does the science tell me? So that was my thought. And the other idea with this is that often in any one community, whether it's the fire science community or the earthquake community or the hurricane community or the oil spill community, there can be long breaks from one disaster to another. If you look at the time period between Exxon Valdez in the late 1980s to the Deepwater Horizon in 2010, That's a long time to try to hold a community together between disasters. But if you look at the sum total of all disasters, they're happening all the time. You have lots of earthquakes in between, lots of hurricanes in between, and everyone can learn from everyone else's disasters. And that's what will knit the community together. Thanks so much for speaking with me, Marsha. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Marsha McNutt is the editor-in-chief of Science Magazine. She writes about fostering communities of interdisciplinary scientists that work together to respond to disasters in this week's science. Next, the Gulf of Mexico is rimmed to the north by the coastline of the southeastern U.S., much of it marshland. That includes Louisiana's Barataria Bay, not far from New Orleans. This area endured one of the biggest ecological hits in the wake of the Deepwater Horizon disaster. Warren Cornwall traveled there to report on the state of the bay's recovery five years later for this week's special issue. Warren, in the months following the disaster, what happened to the oil? Where did it all end up? Well, they're not entirely certain where all the oil wound up. Some of it wound up on the bottom of the ocean. Some of it was collected by emergency responders. And then some of it wound up washing up on shore on beaches and marshes all along the south. Now, paint me a picture of Barataria Bay in late May 2010, a month after the disaster, and then fast forward to today. Would the casual observer notice that a huge spill had occurred five years before? I was down there and really needed the guidance of the scientists that I was with to point out the signs that the oil spill had been there. Probably the most obvious is that when I stepped on shore in a place where the oil had hit the hardest, it looked like the shoreline had essentially been paved. There was this layer of 
rubber or asphalt along the shoreline, and there was marsh grass growing up through it. So from a distance, you wouldn't have really known anything different. It really took me standing on it before I noticed that it didn't look like regular mud. And after the disaster, scientists were quick to arrive in order to follow this rather unusual experiment. What are some of the most notable changes they've recorded in marshland organisms after five years, Warren? Well, they've seen changes really at all levels from bacteria all the way up to seaside sparrows that live in the marsh. Some of those effects have lasted and are probably continuing today, and then some of them appeared to have happened early but then have diminished. With bacteria, the oil was fertilizer or food for certain kinds of bacteria, and so you had an increase in bacteria that are going to feed on that kind of oil, and that increase has continued. A little higher up, you have insects. There was a big drop in insects found in places where oiling was heavy compared to places where it wasn't. You had the dying off of marsh grasses in areas where the oil was really heavy. It just killed the grass. There are scientists who are tracking the seaside sparrows that I mentioned. They've found that the sparrows build fewer nests in places where the oil hit hard and that those nests have fewer babies. There's been a decline in periwinkle snails. There's not much indication that those have recovered. There was also a change in the sort of microalgae found in the marsh initially, but it appears that the microalgae has recovered and also a change in the little tiny invertebrates that live in the mud. They've bounced back in numbers, but the overall species composition isn't quite the same as it was before. And what happens in the summer when the tide is low in Barataria Bay? In the summer, scientists found that the worn, weathered puff oil covering parts of the marsh softened in the heat and cracked, exposing fresher oil that still had more toxic chemicals in it that was trapped below, releasing fumes. And what they found was that in areas where there was a lot of this oil, insects were basically disappearing, and the thinking was that they were essentially being fumigated. Scientists did an experiment where they took katydids and floated them on little rafts, and they found that in the summer when the temperatures were higher, when the tide was out and the mudflats and the oil was exposed to the sun for longer periods, that the katydids died. And this ripples through the food chain so that they're finding that acrobat ants, tiny little ants that colonize the marsh grasses, were disappearing each summer in the heavily oiled areas. And they're not sure if it's because the fumes were killing the insects that they feed on or because the fumes were causing the ants to simply not leave the colony to go forage for food. And in your article, you mentioned that erosion has increased after the spill. Why is that? And what are some of the consequences? The wetlands and marshlands in Louisiana have been suffering from erosion for decades, thought to be a couple of causes. One is rising sea levels in the Gulf. Another is that the energy industry has been cutting canals through the wetlands, changing how the water moves through the marshes, so it's killing the vegetation. And then there are other scientists who think that the loss of sediment coming down from the Mississippi River because of dam projects further upstream has starved the coast of sediment that it needs to continue to rebuild the marshlands. 
So all those forces are already taking a toll on the marsh. Then when you add the oil, that kicked it into overdrive. Scientists found that there was an acceleration, a doubling of erosion rates in the initial months after the spill in places where the oil came in really heavily. And it essentially just killed the grass along the shoreline. It's just this matted down black gunk just pressing down the marsh grasses. And it's the marsh grass that's really helping to hold together the land and resist the forces of the waves. And so you see overhanging marsh banks that look like they're just about to fall into the gulf. There are plastic poles that had been placed to mark oiled vegetation five years ago that today are standing 20 meters away from the shoreline out in open water. And it could be that the roots deep down have been affected by the chemicals in the oil, and so they're just not as strong as they used to be. It's also possible that bacteria that were supercharged by the addition of this oil would start digesting more of the organic matter that's really at the foundation of this marsh at a rate that they hadn't before, and that that could sort of chew away the foundation of the shoreline, essentially. Okay, so let's travel farther out into the open water of the bay now and talk about what's happening there. I understand there's a population of dolphins that depends on fish and shrimp for their survival. How are they doing? The Barataria Bay dolphins aren't doing so well, according to the latest health checkups. Scientists found that they were in much worse shape than their counterparts in a part of Florida where the spill didn't hit. The dolphins in Barataria Bay as a group have far higher rates of serious lung disease. More of them are underweight. They have suppressed hormone levels that can be associated with toxic exposures. And the scientists found that 17% of the dolphins that they looked at were in such bad shape that they didn't expect them to live long. So not a good picture. And apparently dolphins can detect oil, but they don't necessarily avoid it. And so they'll swim in it or surface in it. That's discouraging news, Warren. And what about the seafloor of the Gulf of Mexico? How have organisms there responded? And is there still oil at the bottom? Far out in the deep sea, there is still oil at the bottom. There's quite a bit of oil that sank during the spill. And it's a mixed picture. They've found patches of coral that appear to be sick or suffering from sort of an infestation or even dead, and that those things seem to be associated with being in the path of the oil. There's patches of coral in other places in the Gulf that didn't seem to get hit by the oil. They've also found a change in the benthic organisms in some parts of the Gulf that seem to be the most heavily oiled. Scientists looking at the mud in the deep sea floor found a massive upheaval in the little worms, crustaceans, snails, and clams that live down there and found a real loss of diversity since the oil spill. Now, not all species fare poorly after disasters like this. Have some organisms shown resilience? There's been surprising resilience at a lot of different levels, even in species that have shown declines. The brown pelicans were one of the poster children of the spill because you saw them just coated in brown goo, and a number of them died during the spill. But there's not evidence at this point that it has had a significant impact on the overall population of those pelicans. There are places where the marsh grass was oiled, but it's growing back, and it's growing up even through layers of the oil. 
there's some indications that insects that had really been wiped out in parts of the oiled area are starting to recover. There are also some real mysteries, and fish are a good example. Scientists have found pretty clear evidence that fish in the estuaries had genetic markers that are connected with growth abnormalities, stress, gill damage, heightened immune response, a suite of problems that are associated with toxic exposures. You would think that that would translate into an overall impact on the fish populations, but so far the scientists haven't found that. So that's a puzzle. There's no indication at this point that the fish populations have crashed or declined as a result of the spill. So it's a real question mark and something that scientists are continuing to try to answer. That's interesting, Warren. So it sounds like you can't just look at one or two components of the ecosystem and make a pronouncement about the whole thing. What's the take-home message about recovery at this point? That's one of the big take-home messages is that different parts of the ecosystem responded to the spill differently and they continue to respond to the spill differently. And some seem to have come through the spill relatively unscathed, and others seem to have taken a big hit. You know, one of the other messages is that this is a story that is continuing to unfold. There are chemicals that that spill put into the system that will be there for decades. The PAHs, or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, are long-lived, and scientists have said that they expect them to be at elevated levels because of that spill for decades to come, and they're known to be toxic. And the question is, how will that toxicity play out through the ecosystem? Will nature essentially be resilient enough to weather those insults? Will there be subtle changes that are important but hard to identify? Or will there be some kind of unraveling of parts of the ecosystem there that are starting now and only in retrospect will scientists realize what they saw coming? It's really an open question. I think a lot of people have told me that they're struck by how resilient the system has been, that it seems to have responded and sort of overcome the immediate impact of the spill more quickly than they might have expected. But there are people who live down around Barataria Bay and who make their living off that bay, catching oysters or shrimp or fish. And when you ask some of them, as I did, they will tell you that things are different. Things are worse than before the spill. You have people down there who are convinced that that bay is really damaged. And these are people who are out on the water day after day. And so I think you have to take that into account when you think about what's happened down there. There are people who are working today and who are going to be working in the future to see if they can answer some more of these puzzles about what happens years after you add this much more oil to an ecosystem. Thanks for speaking with me, Warren. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Warren Cornwall writes about the science of ecological recovery following the Deepwater Horizon disaster in this week's Science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. 
listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.